Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another episode of Thoughts on Films. My name is Fikri and I have with us here today a very special guest who goes by many monikers. Some call him Cikgu. Uh, I always refer to him as Encik Hassan, but it is basically the one, the only, uh, Mr. Hassan Abdul Mutalib. Hello. Assalamualaikum, Encik Hassan. How are you doing? Everything alright with you? Okay, that's good to know. Uh, today's episode, we are going to be talking about a particular film called Mandi Safar, directed by Muhammad Zain Hussein. Um, quite a number of you may have already uh, seen or, or may at the very least be aware of this film. Um, certainly the director himself is a well-regarded figure in the history of, of the film industry. Um, unfortunately, no longer with us, uh, but a number of, of films and and. Uh, people he left behind, if you will, you know, people who have influenced and, and um, uh, mentored, if you will, have gone on to do uh, a lot of good things, including you, Jason. Um I think just very briefly in, in our WhatsApp conversations about him or in the email conversations we had about him, you described yourself as something of a mentee to uh, Muhammad Zain Hussein. Yeah, we are both from the same uh, town, Tung in Penang. Right. And I, I didn't know him in Penang because he had already left. But I knew his family and I was great friends with his brothers. Right. Uh, and, uh, he actually was uh, raised not by his parents, but he was given away to a relative called uh, Hussein. That's why his name is Muhammad Hussein and not uh, Muhammad Ismail. Right. Okay. So when I came to work in Film Negara in 1968, so I met him uh, for the first time and I heard a lot of things about him from his brothers. And uh, it was only when his, one of his brothers came uh, to Kuala Lumpur, stayed with me, and then together we went to see Zayn. Then uh, only, you know, I got to know him a little bit better. But it was only after he had... Uh, uh, That's very interesting. Uh, and perhaps uh, there'll be some parts that we will of, of that uh, particular narrative that we'll be jumping into at, at some points in time. Um, thank you very much for that, for, for that context of, of your relationship with uh, uh, Tuan Zain, uh, essentially. Um, just very briefly, for those of you who may not know, I'm just going to recount the plot to the film Mandi Safar. Um, this is the official one that I came across <laughs> some time ago. Somebody was sharing the film on... WhatsApp, uh, and they shared an image of uh, an archived, um, I guess you could say, uh, entry uh, at Perdana Library and whatnot. Um, 
basically, the, the story or the film captures the delicate spirit of Safar, a Malay festival celebrated either by the riverside or the seaside. Essentially, a day when good luck tokens are floated on water to ensure good fortune for the year ahead, it has become a festival of gaiety and laughter for the whole family. But for the young, it is an exciting day of tantalizing delight and tender romance. However, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to offer something a little bit extra as well because um, in Shiasan, you have published an academic journal uh, on the films of, of the Malayan film unit, and, and this is one of those films. Um, and I, th I think your synopsis is also something worth bearing in mind because what you wrote here is that in the early 1960s, many Muslims in Malaya considered the Safar month as one of bad luck. As such, uh, many Muslims wrote Quranic verses on paper or leaves, immersed them in water and bathed in it so that bad luck would not befall them. Others headed for the nearest beach, ran into the sea holding the leaves and bathed. These practices have since uh, been discontinued since they have come to be regarded as un-Islamic. So, so basically, I'm looking at two different uh, plot lines here, or descriptions of the plot, if you will. Um, and, and both are correct, but I'm just wondering, like, you know, what gives between the first one, which seems like a, a more upbeat, a more positive look at things, and then yours, which has a more critical uh, perspective on, on the scenario? Yeah, the first one was, of course, uh, based on the film itself, and uh, without going into any kind of criticism or analysis. Right. But uh, I was looking at the film uh, from uh, the present-day context, or uh, uh, the post-colonial element coming into the picture, and also because when I started to write the articles for the British Film Institute, mm -hmm. uh, there was uh, actually in London there was a conference. It was called uh, Britain and the Malay World, and uh, the paper, uh, out of the five, uh, out of the twenty papers presented, mine was one of the five that was chosen for publication in the academic journal Southeast Asia Research. Because I think not because it was a great paper, but because I think it was the only one that uh, had been written about the Malay film unit. Mm. So, uh, of course, I had to be very critical. And uh, I still remember that when I was going around with the Ramad Zain, uh, we were, of course, all very charmed by the film and the way it had been shot. So, mm. coincidentally, in the early 70s, I was just beginning to get into film. There was, I think, 1974 when the Club Cine Film Malaysia came into being mm -hmm. uh, by uh, founded by uh, Sad Ali. So I began to watch films seriously and of course <clears throat> uh, after reading about films and so on I became uh, more critical and when I started to write academically of course I became even more critical and then I began to look at Mandi Safai from a uh, different vantage. Mm. Uh, it was made in 1961, eh? wasn't it? 61? 62. 1962. This was uh, 62. Eh? It was after Merdeka. Yep. Now, in 1954, uh, Zayn made a film called uh, uh, Hassan's Homecoming, mm -hmm. and he, he was a film director. He became the director of the film by default. There was another director called Mohamed Yusuf Khan, okay. who was actually the director, but he fell ill due to malaria and he died. And uh, uh, 
Zeno so was the cameraman and he had to take over. So, of course, the rest is history. And if you look at the film, it was very, very uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, journey of the hero uh, put on the screen. Of course, mm. nobody knew that at the time. Even I don't think even he knew. Now, uh, in that film, <coughs> it was about the party culture system in uh, in Kedah, where um, uh, you know uh, they wanted to start a cooperative for the villagers because right. they were all in debt to a local money lender, and at the end of the day, they hardly had anything left. So, if you look at that film. It was about, uh, if you look at the last image of the film, it's about the family sitting down to have dinner. So you see, at the end, it's all about survival. And mm. it's not food on the table, uh, that's enough for the people in the village. So the British tendency was to separate the uh, Malays uh, into the agriculture sector, the Chinese to be in the towns, and mm-hmm. the Indians in the rubber estates. So you can see that being repeated in Mandi Safa. Mm. The film starts with the village, and then you see the uh, what do you call uh, the people in the village are coming out. You see the very field very clearly, mm. and then uh, at the end they go back to the very field. So you see the same narrative is being recycled, and you can see the same thing happen in the first uh, feature film made in Kuala Lumpur. Which was called uh, Abu Nawas. Hmm. Now, even Abu Nawas started with a schoolgirl sitting by the paddy field and throwing a stone into the river. So, visually, they are identifying the Malays with only a paddy uh, field scenario, and that's where they should belong. Hmm. And in fact, even the British, in their writings to uh, London, they still uh, they observed the Malays and they noted down that it was better for the Malays to be involved in agriculture and let the Chinese uh, uh, do what they do best in the towns. So you see, you can see this uh, very clearly at the beginning and the ending of Pandi Safa. So mm. when I saw that, I saw uh, I was uh, beginning to be very critical. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you do have, uh, as you mentioned, a number of idyllic images of the kampung life, you know, people just relaxing by the sawapadi and whatnot. And, and, and a lot of what you said, that I think, um, essentially, yeah. film filmmaking here um, is, is seen as a re-socialization tool, uh, if you will, <laughs> and to, to kind of really uh, force a certain image uh, on the population. Um and in fact, to be honest with you, you said the beginning and the end of the film. Um, the beginning and the end of the film, what we see is actually like a series of macam <clears throat> rumah kampung yang model kecil-kecil. So it's like the small figurines, if you will, um, of the, the Malay kampung before we actually get into the actual real live action photography or cinematography, right? And as I, I, watching that, I thought it's, it's a bit weird to kind of start off with that. But I guess... In a way, we can kind of read that as as a primer to suggest that what you are about to see is a kind of construct <laughs> because you know the little models, kind of like little toys, it's, it's not real per se. Um, yeah, yeah. So there is that that um, orientation that perhaps uh, some people may may well bear in mind. Having said that, I mean, of course, on some level, a lot of films are always a, a, a certain form of construct. But I just want to 
get your take on this film because um, this is very much uh, a film that you, I, I would imagine, be fairly familiar with. Also a time frame that you'll be very familiar with as well. And I just wonder, like, as much as we can see that this representation is, is perhaps skewered by the by by the maybe by some interests like the, the British interest in pre presenting certain communities in a certain way. I just wonder as well um, how much of the representations we see on screen actually match up to the reality that you may see in real life uh, at that time. Mm, okay, so yes, uh, the whole film looks to be very idyllic. Mm. Now, this was especially made for the film festival. Uh, to be sent overseas, and all this came about <coughs> through the initiative of uh, Tom Hodge, who was the third uh, director and head of the film unit at the time. Mm. So the first film we made specifically for the uh, International Film Festival was a film on the Orang Asli called uh, Timeless Amir. Yes. Now, now Zin was very smart. And what you saw at the beginning of Andi Safar with those uh, small, small uh, uh, miniature houses, mm. I think, uh, I'm just conjecturing, I think he knew that what had to be shown at festivals was something that was actually happening, but he also wanted to show that this was the ideal thing uh, the kind of uh, exotica that the West w would like. And that was the way, same way, the timeless Timia was also presented. Now, instead of just showing the Orang Asli, he began with an officer from the Orang Asli department who was coincidentally a very famous uh, portrait artist, uh, Roman Osenanas, who had been working in the Malay film unit in the 1950s. So, we see a modern Malaya and then we see him going on a boat as if he was going to <coughs> meet uh, the Orang Asli. And then he disappears. Then we see the Orang Asli until right up to the end, how they uh, work, how they live their lives. So the reason was, and this he told me himself, the reason was, he didn't, if he had just shown Orang Asli, uh, people in the film festival would have thought that... Uh, the people in Malaysia were the Orang Asli. Yeah, the that's right. So, to avoid that impression, he had that uh, opening introduction. Now, mm. similarly, in uh, Mandi Safar, <coughs> our set designer, his name was uh, Anandam Xavier, who made Malaysia's first uh, short animation film all right. called uh, Hikai So, he made all those uh, small models and then even the title was animated frame by frame. Yeah. Now, I think, I think this is what I'm saying that I'm conjecturing that by that kind of uh, introduction to the film in the titling, he was saying that what you are going to see is a construct. So what we see after that is actually a construct. Hmm. And, uh, and this is what he uh, also uh, told to me. So... Um, what do you call <clears throat> all the houses in uh, uh, in a sense also I think uh, all the houses in uh, Malacca at the time I mean even today if you look at them they seem to be like model houses rather than actual houses where people are living in yeah that's true. one of the between uh, the Malay 
houses in Malacca and the rest of the country. I'm sure you agree. Yeah, yeah, frozen in time. <laughs> yeah. And they are quite small compared to the other Malay houses all over Malaysia. Yep. And they are closer to the ground and they have a very, very wide veranda, mm-hmm. which is nice for sleeping. Okay, so uh, he told me that he actually uh, created a story uh, and built everything uh, around that story. So it was a story of a Malay girl and a Malay boy leaving the village to go uh, for Mandi Safa. Mm. Now, I will mention that I still remember at the time, the 1950s, Mandi Safa, I mean, I'm talking about the good old days, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Mandi Safa, <clears throat> there was nothing uh, un-Islamic about it. Uh, people will write, uh, uh, some of the Ustas will write, uh, Quranic verses on uh, mango leaves and then it actually didn't, didn't have to go to uh, the rivers or the uh, what do you call the sea to bathe. It could just drop it into the cola, you know, the mm. uh, yeah, the cola where you collect water and then you bathe. And yeah. It's already good enough. Actually, there was a scene of that. Uh, there was a scene like that uh, earlier in the film as well. So we see like a version of that at least uh, in the film. So what Zain uh, wanted to do was, when he was asked to make the film, he had to do. He had to come up with something that was quite uh, uh, unique that had a narrative because people <coughs> prefer narratives. That's right. Whenever they are watching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sorry, I'm getting a sore throat. Uh, Mandi Safa, you know, there are four ways of presenting a documentary. One is a very journalistic approach, very straightforward. Number two is uh, the symphonic approach, where everything is nice and beautiful, Mm -hmm. but you really do not know the problems of the people and so on, and that is what Mandi Safa is all about. And it is pointing... And this is the kind of film that will win uh, awards at festivals. And as you can uh, see, the narration is done in a very poetic manner by Noni Wright, a British woman who had been with the BBC in London. She also did the commentary for Timeless Tamiya. <clears throat> and you can see how it is an outsider looking at uh, the Malays. Sorry. So you can see the origins element there. Sorry, just to, just to confirm... So the, the version that we're talking about now is actually the Malay version. I think there are two versions to the film, one with an English voiceover, another with a Bahasa Melayu or Bahasa Malaysia or Bahasa Melayu at the time, um, voiceover, if you will. Um, it's actually a female voice uh, describing the action in Bahasa Melayu in using pantun and, and, and rhyming and whatnot. Kan? Um, so I just wonder, so just to confirm, this, this person you said is actually a British woman? Yes, for the English version, uh, she was the writer. Uh, somebody translated it into English and then she rewrote it uh, to, to suit the narrative, uh, to suit the visual. So mm. I do not know who wrote the Malay one. It may have been Pasako, uh, who had been working there for some time. Mm. Uh, no, no, I think uh, he left before that. It may have been somebody else. So anyway, uh, she wrote the English narrative. 
I saw both, um, but the, I mean the one I, I prioritize in preparing for this uh, discussion is the Malay version. But but I saw both, yeah. Okay, hmm. so of course they did some research and he knew about the Dundang Sayang and how the people <coughs> used to dance, and it was only at that time it was only uh, women dancing with women, not with men, hmm. especially for the. actually a question I have uh, lined up for you as well because later on you do see a scene which, um, there was a man who which, um, he was unhurt by fire so there's a bit of fire play going on there oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I was just about to ask you actually but, but I think you have already answered whether you know the target audience for okay. this is, is for other Malayans at the time or whether it was for a foreign audience but I guess you already answered but, that those, those things actually happen you see they would have this uh, this style this fierce Yeah. He said, if you are a director worth your salt, you will know how to do it. 
and his favorite expression was, uh, the, "The best candid shot is a directed shot." That means <laughs> you don't just go and shoot it, but you set things up. But you have to make it look as if uh, it, it just happened in front of the camera. So here you can see uh, John Grierson's very famous quotation: "Cinema is the creative treatment." Of actuality, and that's what uh, Zin has done. And I think he may have been influenced by all the crown film units he was screening uh, in the early days when he was a cameraman at Blade Film Unit. Hmm. I see. Okay. Well, I suppose it kind of lends greater credibility to the idea that um, you know the constructedness, if you will. Um, of of this film and then and then perhaps uh, filmmaking at large. When you said that, it kind of reminded me of uh, a slightly different experience. Maybe a bit off tangent here, but my friend and I we were shooting in uh, the house of an old Korean woman, so we were moving some stuff around, and then the old lady helped to move some of the things around. You got lah. Um, but then when she really offered, and she said, "No, no, we don't need to move that," and then she wanted to move that as well, and then my friend said. Uh, no, no, it's okay. You don't have to move it. We'll just make it up because filmmaking is all about lying. Yonghwan and Kochima. So, so fil- films are lies, basically, is what he said. Um, and I just thought when when you said that, it kind of just reminded me a bit about the the constructedness, if you will, of 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 that example and of your description here. Um, and 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 the quote that you said earlier was it directed the the best candid shot. It's a directed shot, right? Uh, uh, the best candid shot is a directed shot. That's yes. right. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that kind of helps to encapsulate all of this um, in a very interesting and way. Can, and you can even see this in the uh, last sequence, the song and dance, mm. and uh, how the, the the shots go back and forth. Uh, and you can see uh, film theory, very correctly used. Mm. There is this old lady. Who is as, as if she is uh, the master of ceremonies. Right. She's sitting there, and then uh, after the girl has uh, uh, given the pantun, uh, she turns and it's as if she was uh, giving a cue to the young man to answer. Uh, because uh, in the song, uh, this is how it was in the old days. Hmm. Even in uh, I think uh, Piramli's uh, uh, what was it? Saniman Bujang Lapo. Hmm. When uh, 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 Rosyatima and Piramli are in the room alone, hmm. uh, she says, "She says that uh, Abang Ramli, uh, last night when he, he was singing, I really like your voice. You have a good voice, something like that." Hmm. And then, of course, he's, uh, uh, he knows that there were three people singing. So he say, "Ah, actually, my voice is not that good." And then, what does she say? Ah, this is the cue that she gives. He says, "Ala, apne orang nak beli." True. It's actually even in my wedding, when I got married to my wife, um, I didn't do that. But in my rombongan, there was somebody, a representative from our side, who did exactly that. So it was macam. I mean, maybe again, a slightly different context again. But but it was when I watched this film, Mandi Safar, and then I saw that um, exchange between the guy and the girl at the end. 
And I thought that was very cool, very interesting. And then it kind of reminded me, actually, you know what? I kind of took part in that. So walaupun sekarang, we don't really do that as much. Uh, I, I, I reckon there are still some people out there who, at least for formal occasions, they uh, they they utilize such services. If you can't do it, you can just get A. Samad Syed to do it for you, I guess. <laughs> See if that's what you want. <laughs> to berpantun on your side. <laughs> for ceremonial purposes. So this is one aspect of Malay culture uh, that is fast disappearing mm. and you can see how clever the Malays were in the old days mm. that they could come up uh, with the pantun spontaneously. Mm. Uh, some, you know, even uh, students who study poetry also <laughs> cannot do. Yeah, true. Spontaneously pula though. In, in Bahasa Melayu yang, yang so-called betul Bahasa Melayu kan, you know, it's, it's even uh, absolutely for me lah. It's, it's, I'm out of the question. Which I think my dad is not going to be too happy about, but but that's just reality, as it is. Um, having said that, I mean, we, we we talked earlier about a film like Mandi Safar, and a number of other films having a very strong apa, um, orientalist, if you will, uh, perspective. You know, the target audience is largely for foreigners, couple um, So what we see in a film like Mandi Safar is is you know largely a construct, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, I mean, for you. Surely, watching something like this for you, I mean, you, I would imagine that you'd be happy in a way to kind of at least see how some of this tradition or culture or at least a representation of it is kind of historicized in a way. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Are you, is this something that you're happy about or are you much, um, you look at this and you think, oh, it's not really like this, you know? It's, um, what are your thoughts on this matter? I'm very happy that uh, there is a record of, uh, of an event uh, that was very commonplace at the time. And mm. the way he uh, recorded the whole thing, uh, it was true to how it was in those days. So you can see how people dressed and how people behaved and how people da- uh, danced. And then, of course, that pantun back and forth. So these are these become... Uh, uh, a historical document now. Mm. Similarly, with uh, uh, even all these other films, there was a lot of thinking put into it. Well, I mean, certainly, yeah. From my side, which I'm, my point of reference is, of course, incredibly skewed. So, so what, what you said there is something that is actually very important, and I hope we can consider that context as we watch uh, the film. Um, one final thing before we end the first part of our discussion here. Um, just getting back very briefly to the female voiceover uh, narrator, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that the voiceover actually did feature a female voice, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, rhyming in, in Pantun and whatnot. Was this actually a common thing to have a female voiceover narrator in, in such an authoritative role back in the day? Yeah, I think it was quite unique because all the other films that I've seen is always male. Mm. Uh, uh, and this one suddenly out of the blue uh, and a female and I think it probably was a conscious decision uh, because a man's voice would have been probably uh, don't know whether it's too overpowering or whatever but a woman's voice fit especially towards the end of the film mm. where we had we see, uh, and the commentary at the end uh, is actually uh, coming from the woman herself that's right. So as if it's the she, she's the one who's narrating it. Because at the end she says, 
and now we have children three something like that hmm eh? cahaya mata ada tiga I think or something yeah. like that yeah and the beauty of the drama was of course very funny <laughs> but I think it fits, it fits uh, uh, you know uh, becomes very very cultural true absolutely um, but at the same time uh, Zing introduced the car that's also quite important that yes the, the Uh, probably government servants or people who already had jobs in the town and they have a car as compared to the other one. So there are two elements there, one modern and one traditional. So that was quite clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I wrote something here, something about American graffiti. <laughs> What did I write in my notes? Uh, yeah, because I, it felt like basically the whole story is, is a story of courtship right then, between a guy yeah. and a girl. Um And I, I did notice that uh, the guys are riding around town in the modern cars. It felt very much like a scene that you can see, you know, forget Malay, Malayan film at the time. I mean, just think back to some teenage films, uh, you know, uh, in, in the 60s or 70s. That, that's very much like a part of the so-called uh, rite of passage for you and your friends to go in a car like that and to ride around town checking out the girls. So... So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, there is that technological element that, that we um, should not ignore as well, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah. But as it stands, um, yeah, I think we've covered all the bases that we need to cover for the first part of our discussion here. We're going to take a short break. Um, and when we get back, we are going to get uh, a little deeper into the bigger picture context of, um, you know, not, not just this particular film, but the situation, um, the, the, the filmmaking landscape Um at that time and, and how that might help to inform us uh, of our understanding of this film and other films by uh, Tuan Zain Hussein. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, don't go anywhere. Tempat air jadi tumpuan Baik di pantai, di tebing sungai Turunlah mandi si cantik rupawan Berkelah bergurau beramai-ramai Ladies and gentlemen, we're back for the second part of our discussion about the film Mandi Safar with uh, esteemed film historian slash all-round good guy, uh, Encik Hassan Abdul Muttalib. <laughs> Encik Hassan, so in the first part, we talked about uh, Mandi Safar in greater detail. Now, this part of our discussion, I want to talk a bit more about the bigger picture context. Um, so the film was essentially produced by the Malayan Film Unit, um, which the director, um, Tuan Zain, would eventually be like a, a director or the leader of of the unit as a whole so i'm just wondering like um we will kind of touch base on this in the first part but i just wonder all the same like how representative can we regard a film like mandi safar is of malayan uh, documentaries at the time is this like a typical example of what of, of what a, such a documentary would be like were actually something that was out of the way for for um, what do you call um, the Malayan film unit at that time because they were all making propaganda films mm. and uh, uh, the first actual documentary came out in 1947 no, 48 or 49 right. uh, it was all about rebuilding the nation after the war so Basically, all the films were about Malayans working together. So, you see an imagined community uh, using the uh, Anderson, Benedict Anderson punya... Theory, uh, yeah. 
nature when actually he was not. So what you saw on the screen was 100% constructed and there was going to be no uh, recordings of, of interviews of people on the ground. Mm. It was always a voice of God uh, describing everything. Yep. And uh, the British, if they were in the, in the shot, they would always be relegated to the background. Mm. But when uh, Sir General Templer came in 1952 to handle the, the um, anti-communist uh, fight uh, during the emergency, he, uh, the order was given to the Malayan Film Unit to make General Templer the hero of every film that he appears in. <laughs> so this is why you can see him in a very heroic manner uh, in the shots where you don't see any bodyguards surrounding him and he is out in the open when actually he was a huge security problem mm. for everyone. Eh? Yeah, so yeah. he would go around shaking the hands of people and so on to show that he was part of the people. Then uh, you had, they had people smiling when they shook his hands and so on. So he was a really, really a fantastic construct. And they knew what they were doing. Hmm. So Tom Hope was an ex-media uh, and uh, propaganda man who had been in New York and so on until he came here and later became the head of categories hmm. in Singapore. So <clears throat> they knew their stuff. And uh, I remember someone telling me that when Tom Hodge came over, he told everyone, he said, look, I do not know anything about filmmaking, but I leave everything to you. But uh, uh, um, uh, it was something like, what do you say? Uh, uh, but when I look at it, I would know whether you are on the ball or not. And mm. of course, there will have to be comments. And even from the senior, other senior officers from the information department would be there. So there was going to be no criticism of the British or any of the other races. And this is exactly what happened in Jalanampas and Kathy Chris in uh, Singapore in the 1950s and 60s, the same situation mm. during British time. So, uh, what they were doing was all totally propaganda and it was part of the Psy War campaign between mm. 1952 and 1954. So, uh, this undeclared war against the communists uh, was on a was two prong. One was uh, physical warfare, the other one was psychological warfare. So the psychological warfare took into account the media, the radio, uh, uh, the newspapers, uh, uh, and of course, Malayan Film Unit, which was the only uh, uh, movie recording uh, unit at the time. It was the first and only studio at the time. Okay. So I think, I mean, we can clearly see, therefore, the influence of the British in terms of determining how we record and historicize ourselves. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think uh, when, you, when you speak of Tom Hodge, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a part in a previous article of yours that we published on, on the website that looked at uh, Zain Hussein, basically. Um, and you spoke of how uh, Tuan Zain actually stood his ground, basically. I mean, there was something, if, if I recall correctly, Tom Hodge wanted him to shoot something in a certain way. 
But then yeah. uh, Zain Hussein is like, nope, we're, we're not going to do this. Uh, yeah, I think it was so timeless to me, if I'm not mistaken. And what you wrote was yeah. that it's something about yes. to show the the um, uh, nude women uh, of, of the Tamiya tribe and whatnot. Um, so Tom Hodge wanted to kind of show so-called so you know, real life as it is, but then uh, Tuan Zain had a different perspective because he believed that this is... Uh, um, you know, if you put it on screen in that way, people are not really going to pay attention to the story. You know, it becomes something completely different entirely. So I think, yeah. I mean, just just bearing that example in mind, I just wonder as well whether this film, Mandi Safa, can also be seen as somewhat representative of what Zain Hussein is like as a filmmaker. Yeah, uh, Timeless Tamiya, before they were going to shoot, uh, Zin wanted all the women to cover up because they were all topless. And uh, Tom Hodge said, no, 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 you have to shoot them as they are. So this uh, very typical uh, European uh, or Western, Western uh, approach. Mm. So uh, Zin said, no way, because they will think that everyone in Malaysia are going around topless. And of course, yeah, they will yeah. be ogling rather than uh, paying attention to the story or what was being told. So, uh, Tom House got very angry, but Zane stood his ground. And uh, all the staff in uh, uh, Film Negara stood behind uh, Zane that they would all resign if, uh, you know, uh, Zane was being forced to, to do what Tom House wanted. So there's a, there's a mini mutiny there in a way <laughs> to, yeah. to kind of say that it's yeah. our way or the highway and eventually like uh, Tuan Zain got got his way so to speak. Um, um, so I, I, I always thought that was quite interesting to consider Macham because we, we do see these films that we say yeah it's a construct it is Macham is representative of, of uh, something that you know foreigners want or like but at the same time there's also evidence of kind of um um, us kind of standing up in a way, you know, at, at least in this case, the director standing up to say that, nope, we, we're going to do it in this way. It's about otherwise people will get a different impression that is not quite accurate. So I. He was I, nationalistic. I that. Hmm, yeah. So he was born of integrity. He was highly disciplined because he had been with the British Navy and uh, he had seen uh, fighting in the jungle. He was one of the. Force 136 members who parachuted down hmm. uh, somewhere around Greek, I think, and he was wanted by the Japanese. And uh, there's one story to him. He had to give the order to shoot two of his men because hmm. they disappeared, and when they came back, they didn't have a valid reason. So he suspected them of being informers. So he gave the order to shoot them. Hmm. And uh, it affected him psychologically, and this is why he was not able to sit in the dark alone. All right. Yeah, it affected him. So how, how would he edit his films then? Because I would imagine, I mean, my conventional understanding of, of the conventional film editing process would be that you do need to spend a fair amount of time in the dark. I just wonder, is this something that also affected him as, as he would make films as well? Uh, I, I don't know about that part of it. Hmm. But editing is in the Malay film unit. The director shoots, the editor edits. Unlike uh, the situation even today, mm. where the director had to sit with the editor, so he's actually not an editor, he's just someone who uh, follows what the director is saying. Right. But in those days, and even the time when I was working there, I could see that after the rushes had been seen, 
collectively together with the director and so on. Then uh, the editor would do the first assembly based on the script. So mm. they actually had a script. And uh, then if there were any shots that were required, uh, the editor would actually tell the uh, director to go and uh, shoot that particular scene so that he could edit it in. But I think that was uh, probably not possible with Timeless Camilla because they had to go deep into the jungle and, uh, you know, there were scenes of elephants, isn't it? Mm. Then Orang Asli, there was no tradition of Orang Asli using elephants mm. uh, for their daily activities. So he actually belonged to Malays and uh, they hired the elephants to actually transport the very heavy camera equipment into the jungle. <laughs> but, <laughs> so you see, this element, this orientalist element, uh, it was great for the Westerners, of course. Uh, and then you can see that the elephants uh, come, uh, they made use of the elephants as part of the scene at the end, where goods are being brought back to the village and distributed to the Orang Asli. Wow, that's that's enlightening. I, I was not quite aware of that. Jadi satu kerja pula kan, you know, it's like, you want to go and shoot something, tapi tak ada kajah. So it's like, oh, we have to wait another day lah, you know. <laughs> and also I thought it's funny macam, it just just imagine, you're making a film called yeah. Timeless Tamiya, or oh, we need another shot, or oh, we cannot do it. Kenapa? We don't have enough time. <laughs> so it's not quite so timeless then, I suppose. Um, oh, that's enlightening. Amazing sequence was the riding the rapids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine they had this huge uh, Mitchell camera. Uh, I'm sure you know the, what the Mitchell camera looks like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You need about two or three people to actually carry it. And Absolutely. It uh, and uh, it's on the raft. Can you imagine? I don't know how. Maybe they just put ropes and uh, tied it down to the raft. But imagine if the raft had collapsed or overturned. <laughs> It was a very narrative approach. It was like uh, like a feature film. Mm. And even the beginning, you had the drums, like a Hollywood uh, <laughs> yeah. movie. Exactly. Very clever. <laughs> yeah, very very orientalist, right? And too much. Um, I think the opening for Casablanca, was it? I think. I mean, like the beating of the drums. If it's not Casablanca, it's uh-huh. another one of these classic Hollywood films, right? Like, um, you know, you're in Africa, kan? I think it's Casablanca. Uh, Casablanca was in, yeah, Morocco, kan? Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has seen all those. He has seen all those films. He was a very intelligent man, and he knew a lot of things. And he was so good. He he, he was a Malay genius like that, unrecognized, because nobody had written except myself, hmm. who has written about. Him. And I knew him personally, a man who, who had incredible principle. And he had a very good heart. He used to always give money to the staff, and he never got it. Uh, never got it back, of course. And he had, at the time, uh, two or three wives. And of course, he needed money, mm. so he he would go on location because of that. <laughs> but there's another another interesting thing. When he went on location for the Kesa Kampung Kita series, mm-hmm. uh, which he, the idea was his, so he was in Kedah. This was 1968, and when I first joined uh, Kedah, and uh, I happened to be in the lab. Uh, of course, at that time, I knew nothing about film. Hmm. And then uh, he was excitedly showing everyone a strip of uh, movie film that he had developed himself in the lab. He was a highly technical man. Hmm. So 
uh, it was a movie film and we didn't have a color lab at the time but hmm. he did it I don't know how he did it he showed, he showed all of us I remember seeing it and uh, in the early days uh, in Bangsa where the studio was uh, he used to have his own uh, photography studio where he would develop and print his photographs right well, this was an incredible man oh that's so cool that's very interesting yeah. And I mean, even in the, uh, the diligence and, and, and the effort. Around, uh, uh, still camera and even the 16mm movie camera. So when he when he came to my house and he, uh, he's, uh, he found me interested in film and he was shocked when he's, uh, he heard that I had never held a movie camera in my hands. He told my friend to go to his car, open the boat, get his uh, box out and inside was a 16mm camera and he forced me to hold the camera. <laughs> you lucky man lucky lucky man oh boy I mean how old was you at that time uh, that was 75 so I must have been about 30 years old so okay. he was shocked at 30 years old I never had a movie camera ah wow it's just amazing what a story what a story that is right. uh, you know the last film that he was involved in uh, to a certain extent was my uh, shot public service advertisement, the Nyamo is where the Nyamo Nyamo are talking. I think now, I know that uh, one. <laughs> I think I know that one. <laughs> but it was hugely popular and finally got banned and uh, I showed the storyboard to him. Yeah. Uh, he said, this is good, this is good. Uh, he's not one uh, who would praise you, you know. But when he saw the idea that I come out with, he really liked it. He said, this is the way uh, to get a, a serious message across. And then he gave me the ending for the film because I did not have a proper ending. He said, mm. uh, if you are making a public service advertisement and it is about a message that you want to get across, you have to have closure to it. So That's I did right. not have closure. I just showed the Yamo ladies after talking, they are all marching out to go and uh, infect the populace. He said, <laughs> no. Right. Round it up, and you have to have something coming in and uh, killing all of them. Then mm. you get the message across correctly, becomes mm. positive. The take home so, message. I did that. Uh, <laughs> the medicine coming in, knocking them all out for six. Oh, excellent! So I didn't re- I didn't realize that his influence would ex- extend to 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 that level. But that's that's incredibly int- intriguing to 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 know and to find out and whatnot. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that with us. Uh, just one final question before we wrap things up for today. Um, I mean, it's funny you mentioned you know um, him developing films and whatnot in his in, in his own lab and such. Because the film's ending, or the ending of the 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 film that we saw, uh, the link to which we will share in the show notes, uh, so that uh, our dear listeners can check it out. So I also highlighted the film cleaning process. Um, that the the version that we saw underwent and it resulted of course in a clearer picture for us to watch now and I thought that's very interesting because um, film preservation and film restoration I guess to be more precise in this case in my opinion I mean certainly off off the top of my head I I cannot really recall that many films being restored and preserved uh, in the way that I have noticed uh, this film is, is being restored and preserved now so I just wonder whether you would know how common such restoration efforts are in Malaysia where old films are cleaned um, or, or restored using newer technologies. So far, Penny, I think it was uh, KRU Productions who restored uh, 
was this Bukit Kepong. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Bukit Kepong, and then, uh, of course, uh, what is the second next one? Uh, Lieutenant Andan by somebody else, I think. And uh, it was not uh, uh, Tina's money. Uh, I do not know whether they are working on, on anything now. I haven't seen any of those films and after the restoration. Mm. But uh, a good thing that there was a budget, about 125 million mm-hmm. that was given uh, to digitize as well as uh, do the restoration. And I think they did a really great job with Timeless Tamiya and, uh, and uh, what's this? Uh, uh, Mati Sama. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so at least uh, these important films are being uh, kept for future generations. Mm. And I was at a meeting uh, where Vinas people came in and uh, they, they also wanted to know what are the films uh, they should restore and I gave them a list mm. that included scenes, uh, other films like uh, uh, Song uh, before, uh, before the Wind uh, and uh, Hassan's Homecoming, as well as uh, Rohani's Steps Out. Mm. Now, Rohani's Steps Out, uh, the, the woman who's playing the lead role in the film mm. actually became his wife. She refused to act uh, unless uh, he married her because she fell in love with him during the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, That's right. Uh, can oh my goodness. The ultimate professional. I mean, you really sacrifice uh, everything <laughs> for the film. Oh my goodness. That's about that for today. We've covered all the bases. Um, and Shiasan, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. It's, it's been lovely to talk to you and, and to you know catch up with you and whatnot. Um, and hopefully this will be something that our listeners will, will enjoy listening to in their own time. Um, so, Shiasan, any more for any more? No, no, I think that's it. Uh, but if you want to have a special session on Zin himself, uh, I think uh, I had uh, some PowerPoints that I did for when I presented it at the Petronas uh, Gallery hmm. where I talked about uh, you know, the awards that they got and I have all these old, old photographs from the 40s and 50s of him uh, original photos uh, they are still surviving beautiful uh, wow let's talk about the context of Singapore films also at that time and about his ideas for helping the film industry uh, in the 60s Mm. Uh, you could see it was not hidden anywhere. So in the 70s, he came out with a paper uh, which was to turn Film Negara into a corporation. But unfortunately, somebody hijacked the paper and out came another entity called Sinas. Ah, how about that? <laughs> the, the, behind the, the behind the scenes stories that, ladies and gentlemen, you and I may not be as familiar with. Perhaps we're going to keep our powder dry for, for now about that. Um, but hey, I mean, it's... It sounds good, um, and it seems like this lockdown is not ending anytime soon, so so we, I might be getting in touch with you sooner rather than later, Encik Hassan. But for now, unfortunately, time is up. Um, yes, uh, say goodbye, Encik Hassan. Right. Thanks very much for the session. Thank you very much, and it's a goodbye for me. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. Um, bye-bye. Everything is okay.